0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you ever feel the need to prove that you are a Christian? Maybe your sins weigh you down and you figure that you somehow need to counteract that by demonstrating that you still remain a Christian. Or maybe you're around someone that seems to be some sort of super Christian and you want to help prove to that person that you yourself remain a Christian. Perhaps you're trying to show God why you feel that you should remain in God's grace, even though you know that your actions don't match what you would like. Now, in visiting with both parishioners and with non-parishioners alike, for whatever reason, some feel compelled when they know that I'm a pastor to tell me, of, the, their, of their Christianity. They want to prove to me that they are Christians. And some do this by talking about all the good things that they do for others, which we know which does not earn a person's salvation. Others do so by talking about what church they belong to, even if they don't bother attending the church. And others try to show me that they're a Christian simply by saying, I pray my nighttime prayers. Of course, doing good works are not optional for us Christians. In fact, they serve our neighbor and supply the faith that faith is living, the proof that faith is living. Belonging to a church and attending a church is necessary to sustain faith and to fulfill God's word, that is in fulfilling his will in the third commandment and saying prayers is what God expects of us, for God certainly tenderly invites us to pray and promises to hear us. So in today's gospel, we have two men. One seems rather, rather intent on proving that he's a Christian, but we have two men that go to the temple to pray. The one man is a tax collector. He's a Jew who works for the Roman government. He has a job that his own people then view him as a traitor. The Jewish people wanted independence from the Romans. And here you have a Jew who's collecting money and making the Roman government richer off of the backs of the people. And not only that, but the tax collector for his own wages needs to collect extra beyond what the Roman government will require of the tax collector, and that becomes his wages. So this tax collector collects as much as he possibly can. He gives what he needs to the Roman government, and he gets to keep a huge pile of cash for himself. So he's basically robbing from his own people, and his own people view him as a traitor to the Roman government. And he goes to the temple to pray. The other person is a Pharisee. He is also a Jew. He's a religious elite. He probably was well-liked by the people. So if you see these two people going to pray, from that type of description, you'd probably be pretty happy to see the Pharisee there, and maybe not so happy to see the tax collector there. When the Pharisee begins his prayer, he begins by saying, "'I thank you, God.'" So far, that sounds rather good, does it not? "'I give you thanks.'" He goes to God's house. He's praying. He's giving thanks to God. But then his prayer continues. It goes in a direction that you would not really expect. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm not like this tax collector over there. Well, what kind of thanksgiving is that? To go up to God and say, God, I thank you that I'm better than everybody else? I'm not like all those evil people out there. That really is a type of passive-aggressive way to put everyone else down. And it is nothing but utter self-righteousness, the very kind of righteousness which God himself despises, saying, I thank you, I'm not like these other people. I thank you that I'm better than everybody. Many Reformation-era woodcuts illustrating this gospel account, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, depict the Pharisee as a monk, Many monks were similar to the Pharisees in Jesus' day as they focused on their works, and many of them even bragged about them. I think in our day, instead of using a monk as an illustration, we should show someone who is not at the temple praying, but instead someone who is sitting on his easy chair. Somebody who is too good to come to church. He doesn't come to church because he has been to church and he's looked around and he knows what all these bad things are that people have done in the church who act so pious when they're here and then they go home and they do what he knows that they're up to doing. And so then he righteously knows the best thing for him to do is to stay home, sit on his easy chair, and pray to God there because he cannot associate himself with the sinners that are busy gathering themselves in the church. But do you know what? They are the ones who self-righteously assert their piety and desire to separate themselves from those whom they perceive as sinners. Those who say they don't come to church because they know who the sinners are that come to church are exactly like the Pharisee that Jesus is describing in this parable. What they don't realize is that they remain soiled in their sin, dead in their sins and trespasses when they're busy despising those who do gather in church, They remain in their self-righteousness, which is not a righteousness that avails before God, and they fail to receive the very righteousness that counts toward their salvation, which is the righteousness of Jesus. When they are so bothered by others, they forget that they are to go to church for this purpose, so that sinners like you and me can have and obtain the very righteousness of Jesus as he applies it through his grace, his word and sacrament. Even though the Pharisees regularly fasted and gave tithes of all that he, or this one Pharisee fasted and gave tithes of what he received, Jesus says this Pharisee did not go home justified. To be justified means to be declared not guilty. It is a biblical term to describe the forgiveness of sins that we have from Jesus. This Pharisee who went to the temple and prayed this prayer of thanksgiving, Figuring that he's better than most other people was not the forgiven one. He did not go home forgiven. He went home guilty in his sin as soiled as he was when he first arrived. It's true, though. He would have gone home feeling pretty good about himself. He would have gone home thinking that God is really impressed with him because he showed God the way he saw things. And even though he felt he stood in the grace of God, he did not. And as much as he tried through his good behavior, he could not make himself alive in Christ. He could not become, he could not save himself. His attempts to prove his Christianity through his actions was nothing but living a lie. One reason why God wants you to be in church every Sunday and why he wants you to be reading your Bibles at home and why he wants you to be reading faithful and good devotional literature on a daily basis is because God wants you to be confident of who you are in Christ. This Pharisee had confidence, but his confidence was misdirected. The the confidence that God wants you to have is confidence in your salvation. Confidence which, as Peter says, is by making your calling and election sure. Confidence in being called by the gospel and elected into God's eternal kingdom. So where do you get this confidence? As I said, this Pharisee had misplaced his confidence. He placed his confidence solely in himself. He figured that his standing with God was found in himself. He did not take seriously God's commands to be perfect. He figured that his sincerity is all that God really cares about anyway. And he did not understand that all those commands in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system to use spotless lambs meant that he himself had to truly be spotless before God. He did not see that this spotlessness would come about by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Because he created his own standard for his spotlessness, he looked at what he did and didn't do. He gazed inward. And that's exactly where Satan wants us all to be. He wants you to doubt your standing before God after you have gazed inward at yourself and seen how far short you have fallen from the glory of God. That way, once he has first placed your confidence in yourself and then reveals to you your sin, then your earthly props that you were relying on, your own self, when that gives way, you lose that footing of which you were so sure, and you are driven into despair. That is what the devil is trying to do. The better way, though, is demonstrated by the tax collector. This tax collector did not take any confidence in himself. The tax collector didn't even look up. The tax collector stood off in the distance. His sin had weighed him down. Now, some would say he's drawing attention to himself. He's busy confessing his sin. He's focused on himself by separating himself in the way in which he was. But the reality was he wasn't drawing attention to himself at all. He was confessing his sin to God. He was not claiming his own righteousness as the righteousness that avails before God. Instead, he was claiming Christ's righteousness as his own. He was pleading for the mercy of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, the word that is used here when he calls for Hebrew or calls for mercy, the, the word there is the Greek word for the mercy seat, the very place where the atonement is made in the Old Testament in the Holy of Holies. So. He calls on God to be that mercy seat. He calls on God to be merciful. He calls on Christ, who alone suffered the wrath of God and bore the world's sin in his own body. So this word that I mentioned that the tax collector uses for mercy is not the word that is normally found throughout the New Testament when we hear that word mercy, which means compassion or pity. Instead, the root word that is found here is only found a handful of times throughout the New Testament, and it's usually translated as propitiation. In this place, it's translated as merciful, and in Hebrews 9, that mercy seat. In Hebrews chapter 2, it is written, Jesus had to to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation That's the word there, for the sins of the people. And in 1 John chapter 4, it is written, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so what does this word mean, propitiation? Propitiation is an offering to appease or satisfy an angry or an offended party. God, of course, is offended He's angry by the sins that sinners commit. And so somebody has to make an offering. He has to appease the wrath of God. And the only one who made an offering to do this is our Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world and bore our sins in his own body. He suffered the wrath of God on the cross. And for he had been forsaken by his father as he bore these sins. That is what Christ did. That is why he is described as our propitiation. And now here you have this tax collector who is praying in the temple, asking God to be his propitiator. Have, have my, or become my propitiator for me, O Lord, is what he's basically saying. He didn't look up with any type of prideful boldness as he made this request. Instead, he knew that this is the very nature of God, that God will send his only begotten Son into this world to pay for the sins of the entire world. The sacrifices that were made throughout the Old Testament, uh, they they, they were meant to point the people ahead to Jesus, who would be the ultimate sacrifice to pay for our sins that he would be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all people, that Jesus would be the offering, that he would appease the wrath of God. Jesus would satisfy the Lord's requirements and make reconciliation for iniquity. So when the tax collector had pled guilty of his sin and he basically was praying, God be merciful on me, a sinner. God be propitiated toward me, a sinner. He is asking God to do what. God had promised to do for him, that Jesus would make atonement for his sins since he could not do it himself, that Jesus would be the sacrifice on behalf of the tax collector, the drink offering in his place, that Jesus would reconcile the tax collector to his Father in heaven. So if you want to have confidence in your salvation, don't do as a Pharisee did and look inward, which ultimately leads to despair, but instead look to Christ look to the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world look outside of you look to see who bled and died for you look to see how salvation is truly offered through the sacred scriptures therefore this tax collector went home justified he went home forgiven he went home as god's child cleansed by the blood of the lamb cleansed of all unrighteousness his right unrighteousness was replaced with the very righteousness of jesus Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you all to have confidence in Christ. He's your solid rock on which you stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When your sins weigh you down, claim Christ as your advocate and savior. When you wonder how God can receive you, a sinner, into God's eternal kingdom, claim Jesus as the one who is the propitiation for your sins. Your trust in Christ, Your trust is in Christ. He alone died for you. He alone rose to take away your sin and to be your justification. He alone grants you the gift of eternal life. I began my sermon by asking you if you ever feel the need to prove that you are a Christian. Maybe you're spiritually mature enough to realize that you don't need to prove to others your Christianity. But perhaps you still see that your sins weigh you down and you wonder how God can receive you a sinner into his kingdom? How can he receive a wretch like me? It's not the way most people would expect to answer this question. Instead of looking at the qualities that we have, like the Pharisee did, we look outside of ourselves. We look to the qualities that Christ has and what he offers. For we are baptized into Christ. Let's use Emmett as our example. How do we know Emmett is a Christian? Is it because he has Christian parents or because he has inherited their Christianity? Is it because he hasn't reached some sort of age of accountability that some people claim exists? Is it because we simply want him to be a Christian? Are any of these reasons for why Emmett is now a Christian? It is none of these, really. Instead, we can prove Emmett's Christianity by his baptism. He is baptized into Christ. In his baptism, Jesus joined himself to Emmet, being united to the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we heard from the scriptures, baptism now saves you, and that is the gift granted to Emmet. This is God's way of adding the little ones to God's family, applying individually the forgiveness of sins Jesus earned for all, and to create faith in even the littlest ones. Yes, Emmet has saving faith. The scriptures teach, or Jesus himself teaches in the scriptures, that these little ones who believe in him, Jesus announces that these little ones, can. he brings forth perfect praise from their lips. It is something that we believe, because God, the Holy Spirit, works faith in us. We believe that we cannot believe, But the work of God is to create faith in us, and he has done that for Emmett. So just as we can prove that a baby is a Christian by virtue of his baptism, that's also the place for all of us to start. When Satan is trying to convince us that we are not Christian or that we have sinned too much to be in God's grace, we can follow the advice of Martin Luther who said, pull out your baptism and wave it under the devil's nose and say, I am baptized I have God's bath. It is Christ's own blood. It is a bath blessed and mixed with the blood of Christ. For Jesus shed his innocent blood in our place. He is truly the propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God is appeased through Christ. And the mercy of Christ extends to us. He claims us as his own. And he has elevated us to be a child of God. (laughs) Jesus is our brother. And so we claim Christ as our righteousness and our confidence is found solely in him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who lives and, is reign- and reigns and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Soon he will take us to be with him in glory. Thanks be to God. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.